just want to say again, welcome to Chi Alpha. My name is Caden. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, many of you may recognize me as one of the announcement givers, and the guy that might ask you every single week, "Hey, come to the after XA after party." Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> the what? The go-to. No, there we are right there. So actually, um, I just want to shout out to the XA House guys for hosting all of those. Like, you guys do a phenomenal job. Those are so fun. Free things. Oh, I love free things. Um, yeah, but speaking of those guys, I was once a house guy. There, I'm right there. Four months ago, maybe five, I don't know, uh, marked the, my last day of four years living in that house. If you asked me which year was my favorite, it would be super easy, but also a bit shocking. Yeah, I mean, uh, if it was fall of 2020 during COVID, oh man, why? All online classes, we dreaded it, but it was like, but Brayden, Evan, Chris, and Tim were some of my roommates, and it was my favorite because being cooped up, I got to spend a lot of time with these guys. And these guys enjoy playing board games and video games also a lot. Um, but what they love is sharing about their relationship with Jesus and what he was teaching them. So they became some of my best friends. One of my favorite memories of that year, to my current knowledge, was the very first house retreat. Oh, man. Okay, the Hexay House guys know what's up right here. So during spring break, SBOs were canceled and of course, we were disappointed. Hashtag blown at 15. Sorry, okay. Uh, if you were there, you know. So we made the best of it by going on a five-day trip to a camp that I have a connection with for free. Let's go. Yeah, we did archery tag. We did ping pong. We played board games. Did an amazing hike. Evan and I were baptized in the river late at night. Um, <laughs> we even mellowed in a make, make, like a makeshift hot tub. Uh, it was like g giant garbage crates with giant tarp, like like strapped to the inside of it, filled up with extremely hot water. Um, oh yeah, but what took? <laughs> yes. So uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's my hair. Look at me. Yeah. All right. Am I? How marvelous is that? It's so sleek, wavy, smooth. Oh man. Oh. Right? That's what I looked like back then. Yeah, look at that. That's a little history photo there for you guys. Yeah, but what stole the show, like what, what took the cake, was fishing. Especially how Tim, Tim was the only person to have caught a fish. And he was also the only person to have never caught a fish before that. Evan, check me on that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's like, that's amazing. <laughs> the only person, everybody fished, but he's the only one. Oh, man, but that fish, oh, my goodness, guys. There aren't much better things to do than to earn your food, to pair it with butter and garlic and lemon. Oh, tinfoil it up, throw it on the fire, cook it, and then eat it as a family. Oh, man, these guys just love quality food, and they love sharing their knowledge of cooking with others. But not just that. They love sharing the moment of eating it with others. So what does your guys' community look like? 
Who are the people you would sit around a table and share every meal every day with? Friends, best friends, mentors, spouses. These guys helped bring a new meaning to me about sharing life, especially through food. Okay, time to stop talking about food. Here we go. Okay. Um, so this, this week basically looked like my whole year as a junior here at Central pursuing a history education degree. And it was also the year that sparked an interest in the internship, primarily because Tim just doesn't stop talking about the things he's passionate about, one of which was all he was exploring in the internship. So after many months of late-night gaming and late-night conversations about what he was learning, Tim and I went on a really long run. And I mean, like, it was like, had to be like three hours. We ran from the house down to People's Pond and back. We were in way better shape. Uh, and that was one of our workouts. Um, so Tim asked me if I might be interested. We asked a lot, um, like, we talked a lot about why. I prayed, and long story short, I'm here now in my second year of the internship. <laughs> yeah. So tonight, we are fast-forwarding several chapters from where Tim, conveniently, left off. And now we are in Matthew 26. So if I could get my Bible pastors to come up. Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. And if you need to keep it, like, it's actually yours. You can keep it. As we have mentioned before, we can't cover everything at this time. But I just, I totally encourage you guys just to read all that we don't cover um, and really ask questions. If you were at fall retreat, you might recall Jessica said wisdom is gained through asking questions. So as you guys grab your Bibles and open to Matthew 26, I will just refresh us real quick on where we left off. So we are reading a book Matthew wrote, who is an eyewitness to everything Jesus did. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, one of Jesus' friends who lived life with him for several years. He wrote with a specific audience in mind, a Jewish audience. This audience has been wondering for centuries when the Messiah, their king and savior, would come. And Matthew was convinced that this king and savior, this Messiah, was Jesus from Nazareth. However, Jesus didn't fit their certain expectations. He didn't come as a king with a sword, an army ready to dethrone Caesar on the Roman throne that currently oppresses them. In reality, Jesus comes to fight a spiritual war, not as a military leader, but a suffering servant. That his upside-down kingdom has come near. Jesus is the meek and gentle king who cares for those who are, in poor, who are poor in spirit and sits with sinners. He miraculously healed those who were thrown out of society, drove out demons, fed thousands who came to, to him to hear him speak with just a little bit of bread and fish. Fish, man. Last week, we learned he was also full of righteous, passionate anger, calculated and full of purpose, who saw the marginalized exploited at the temple, at the temple courts by the religious leaders and the businesses that they allowed in. He's assertive, willing to call out those who need to be called out. And tonight, we'll be reading about Jesus' last meal and how he takes an existing Hebrew tradition rich in symbolism and meaning and gives it new meaning for what he was about to do in Jerusalem. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 26. It's on the screen as well. Here we go. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, who was, whose name was Caiaphas, 
and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there, there may be a riot among the people. So who's the son of man? I want to tell you guys about Daniel. So Daniel is a prophet in the Old Testament during the Israelites' exile in Babylon who had a vision of the Son of Man who was coming with the clouds of heaven. In chapter 7, the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days, another title for Christ. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Daniel says that the Son of Man's dominion would become an everlasting dominion that would not pass away, and his kingdom is one that would never be destroyed. Jesus has seen himself as this king, as this very king, the Daniel 7 king, whose kingdom is home to every tribe, tongue, and nation of this world. How did his disciples see him? How did you see him? So Jesus says, the son of man will be crucified. This actually isn't the first, second, or third, or fourth time that Jesus predicts his death. In Matthew chapters 16, 17, and 20, they all mention it. On top of this, the chief priests and elders already decided the plot to kill him back in Matthew 12. So at this point in Matthew's eyewitness account, we as readers should not be surprised. But a question should arise. Jesus told us he's going to die. Jesus told us he's going to die, but why? For what? It's been talked about five times at this point. Even his closest friends, his disciples, are shocked and in sorrow in hearing this. They have no idea why. They have no idea. Back in Matthew chapter 16, Peter was so shocked that his friend, teacher, and Messiah will die that Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him, saying, never, this will not happen to you. (laughs) Peter rebukes Jesus, right? And they don't understand why the Son of Man, the divine being with all authority, glory, and sovereign power would be crucified. Jesus' response to Peter shows the immeasurable and profound importance of his death. As Jesus says, Peter, that talk is from Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, only human concerns. So Jesus' only explanation up to now for why behind his death is in chapter 20. And it is for the ransom of many. That's it. So why does he not reveal to his friends the reason that he must die? What is he going to die for? So let's just keep reading to find out. Fast forward two more days to the Passover in verse 17. So just jump to verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Okay, pause. I know I said I would stop talking about food. Come on. But, but we have a really important question here, okay? What is the Passover meal? What, what is the Passover? So to explain this, we have to go all the way back to about just about Genesis, at the beginning of Genesis, actually. So bear with me as we recap some important details to, in the story of Genesis. Brandon actually, in the very beginning of the quarter, taught on Genesis 1 through 3, and how God creates everything. He makes humanity uniquely in his image, which is a status, a badge that cannot be removed. 
Humanity as his image bearers are his representatives to co-rule this world with him. But they decide to rebel. They decide to disobey him. And from there, from here, humanity goes into a downward spiral of chaos and suffering. But God gives humanity hope. He shares a plan that would redeem and reconcile humanity, bring us back in right relationship with him. Come on. As we, as we read in Genesis, we get to chapter 12, and we learn about this man named Abram, who is later called Abraham. Come on, who that? Who's that? Who knows? Somebody doesn't know. We are told that in this day, in his day, all of humanity has been rejecting God, the creator of the universe, except Abraham. Abraham is faithful. He's faithful to God. God tells Abraham in Genesis 12, 12 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So long story short, Abraham has a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, and Jacob is later called by the name Israel. Oh, we got this, okay. Meaning one who struggles with God. So Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons who would later be attributed to the 12 tribes of Israel. If you don't know, family is extremely important in the Bible. So here we are with Joseph in Genesis 37, one of Israel's sons and probably the youngest in the family. Who here is the youngest in the family? Oh, wow, okay. So here, here has a younger sibling. Okay. Does the youngest get treated better? Okay. <laughs> this is... This is where we fight. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I thought so. So Joseph is treated a little differently, a little better, in fact, being the youngest and being born to Israel in such an old age. Joseph's brothers resented this. So his brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt. They tell their father, Israel, he was murdered and devoured by a wild beast. They slit a lamb's throat, dip his coat in blood, and show it to their father to convince him of their lies. This is the event where the people of Israel find themselves down in Egypt. Joseph finds himself in the, in, a, in the position where God enables him to interpret the Pharaoh's dream, earns his trust, and Joseph becomes his right-hand man, essentially co-ruling Egypt. Everywhere across northern Africa and East Asia is affected by a famine, but, when, but with God's wisdom, Joseph prevents this famine in Egypt. Prevents the famine affecting Egypt. And Israel and his 11 other sons and their families struggle in the scarcity. And their only hope is in a wealthy Egypt. So Israel, or excuse me, yeah. So they, they decide, hey, we need to travel down. And so plot twist, they get to Egypt, they meet Joseph, and instead of taking revenge and punishing his brothers, Joseph is a good ruler who welcomes his family into the land to flourish. All right. So the Bible and the book of Genesis are so deep, and these stories deserve so much more time and contemplation than we have today. So I encourage you guys to really just dive into it yourself. Now we exit Genesis, and we enter the book of Exodus. So if you guys want to, you guys can follow along and jump to Exodus with me, kind of keeping your finger on Matthew 26. Israel and his son's descendants become numerous. But after Joseph passed away, they lost influence in Egypt. A new king rose to power in Egypt and saw this rise of population among the Israelites to be a threat to the sovereignty of Egypt. 
Exodus 2, 8 says, Then a new kingdom to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as sore cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. It wasn't uncommon to see Egyptian overseers beating the Israelites as they worked. However, the population over 400 years kept growing. The king at one time attempted to prevent this growth, ordering the Hebrew midwives to murder all male children born to the Hebrew women. This plan failed. And a second attempt occurred where every Hebrew boy under the age of two was ordered to be thrown into the Nile. And it leads to the story of Moses, who was one of these infants and was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and secretly raised him. He became a secret Hebrew in a high position in Egypt. And once again, long story short, God reaches out to Moses, uses him to confront the oppressive Pharaoh, and let God's people go peacefully. The Pharaoh is reluctant and mocks God. So turn to Exodus 12. God sends 10 plagues over Egypt, each one mocking the Egyptian gods. One of the Egyptian gods. The last one, however, is quite interesting. So Exodus 12, starting around in verse 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one of each household. Take, one, take care of them until the 14th day of the month, and when all the members of the, of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Verse 11. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of, of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be the, a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So the blood of the lamb that is put on the doorposts of any household is saved from death. God will see the blood and pass over it with no harm done, hence the name Passover. After this tenth plague, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt, chased by the Pharaoh's army. All of Israel comes to a halt, a dead end with a sea in front of them with no escape. But God simply divides the Red Sea in two, as if it was nothing allowing his people to walk through it on dry ground. Salvation has come. Then they enter a covenant relationship with God, essentially a contract with a great emphasis on relationship. So jump a few chapters to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 3 says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to Israel. So if they followed and obeyed his covenant, God would prosper them and bless them all other and, and bless all other nations through them. Now, often God would uphold his end of the contract, and Israelites would fail to uphold theirs. They would worship other gods. As a result of choosing other gods, Yahweh, this is God's personal name, would give them over to their desires. They wanted to live like the other nations and live under their gods. So put yourself in their shoes. As an Israelite, every year since you can remember, you are told this story as if it was your story. That every generation should consider themselves as one who also received salvation and was rescued from Egypt. We see this throughout the entire Old Testament from beginning to end that the Israelites are constantly reminded of this event. And often it is referred to in the present tense. Take the prophet Micah in chapter 6, about 700 years after the exodus. As Israel is turning against them, Micah speaking for God says, I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam, that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. They're constantly reminded of their ancestors' past in such a way that they insert themselves as if they were actually there. All of this is to remember the righteous acts of the Lord. Have you ever spent time reflecting on the past how God has revealed himself in your life up to this point. So how easy is it to forget these memories in times of turmoil and suffering? So this is the story of what the Passover meal represents, how God saved them and they must not forget. And it's a lot, right? This is a lot. This is a lot, right? Like, this is why they share it over a meal, guys. And each piece of food is rich in symbolism from Genesis through Deuteronomy. The food represents a piece of the story where Yahweh God rescued his chosen people out of oppression in Egypt. Take the karpas, for example, which is like lettuce dipped in salt. It represents the story of Joseph, the bitter herb, usually horseradish. Anyone eaten horseradish before? Okay, so you guys know, you guys know when it is eaten, it is so awful, it burns your throat and your nose, and it makes you cry, right? Like, like it's horrible, right? And the point of that, the point of eating the horseradish is to remind them of their ancestors suffering in Egypt, suffering in slavery. The unleavened bread, which is bread without yeast, represents how they hastily escaped Egypt because they didn't have enough time to let the, bro- the bread rise and take form. The eating of the lamb is what symbolizes the lamb's blood that was put on the doorpost to save them from death. And guys, there are so many more components to the meal. Like this would take several, several hours, especially w- since like the children would ask questions because the parents really wanted them to know. And so the whole story was shared every year. Why? Like I said before, every generation would consider themselves 
as one who also received salvation and was rescued from death. So have you ever considered the Bible stories to also be part of your spiritual lineage? That these stories in the Bible aren't just words in a book, but also these stories help shape the church and who we are as people. So if this image of a dinner doesn't make any sense right now, we're going to have a much clearer image in a few minutes. So now let's fast forward to 1,500 years to the first century where we left off in chapter 26. Move that slide, Patrick. So chapter 26, verse 20. Earlier, I asked, why does Jesus decide not to reveal, or yeah, why does Jesus not decide to reveal to his friends why he is going to die? What is he going to die for? I think he decided not to reveal much because he was building up to share it in a memorable way with his closest friends through a meal. And not any random meal. The Passover meal, which is already rich in symbolism and meaning, as we just looked at. So Jesus and his friends just finished preparing the Passover meal, and now they have started to eat and celebrate it. And man, Jesus knows meals with best friends are the best, right? Like, let's go. Like, oh, I love it. Meals are good. Food is so good. All right, so verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. There they were very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Do you get it? Are you guys shocked at that? Like, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? Of course we might not, right? Like, even with the history we know of the Passover, what Jesus is communicating is probably still confusing for most of us. Since we're not, we're not Jewish, we're not there. So let me paint a picture for you, literally. Let me paint a picture for you. On the screen right here is a famous painting by who? DiCaprio. Uh, no. <laughs> it's a, it's this, this is by Da Vinci, and it's an amazing masterpiece, right? Um, it's an amazing masterpiece. There was so much thought and symbolism that went into this painting. Da Vinci took a snapshot of his interpretation of what Jesus' 12, dis- the, the reaction of Jesus' 12 disciples after he said, one of you will betray me, and bam, that's what happened. Right? And we can't get into a lot, but some of the uh, symbolism includes Judas on the left reaching for the same, um, right there, you can see it. He's the reaching for the same, I can't get into it, but the reaching for the same thing, like this glass and, this, and the bread. Um, Peter has a knife behind his back, it's right there. Um, it has a knife right there, and uh, that is to, um, that, pe- that knife behind his back is, like, is him ready to protect Jesus foreshadowing their conversation later that Peter would not let Jesus be arrested. 
right? He ends up cutting off her ear point and spilling it, um, probably trying to stoke his offhand. There's just so much emotional detail in the body language of all of his friends. We can, can't go into it, but, but what is the problem with this interpretation? It's definitely a cultural interpretation, right? Da Vinci, a talented, talented Italian painter, worked on this piece in the 1490s, and we can clearly see his cultural influence, right? Every, like a lot of cultures do this. There's a lot of things throughout history. Verse 20 says in Matthew 26 that the whole group was reclining at a table. Are they reclining at a table? No, they're in chairs. Their clothes in the painting definitely reflect the Renaissance attire at the time. It's daytime. It's not evening, right? Um, how about the skin color, right? They're definitely of European descent. Like, they're, not, they're, they're white. They, they look nothing like a first cent century Jewish man, right? But beautiful painting, rich in its own symbolism. So let's get a better picture inside of our mind. This is way more accurate. No, I'm just, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, shout out to Jared for that idea. Uh, yeah, we can, go to, we can go to a better, a more, this is, this is a better picture. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is a better picture in our minds. Right? They're reclining. It's nighttime. Candles and everything are fun. This one's fairly solid. All right, we're going to time travel. Time travel with me. You can close your eyes if you need to. Your giant family with friends are hosting this annual Passover meal that has been celebrated for 1,500 years by your fathers and your father's fathers. It's evening. The moon barely provides any light coming in from the windows, but there are candles that shine enough light that you can see everyone's faces well. There you recline at a square table. Everyone is facing each other. The host raises his voice and says this traditional Hebrew blessing. May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth the fruit of the land. The meal begins. You drink wine, and he begins to talk and walk through the historical symbols of this meal. You follow along with everyone grabbing a piece of lettuce and dipping it into salt water. The host explains, by eating this herb dipped in salt water, we recall the story of Joseph and how our people came to end up enslaved in Egypt. His brothers sold him and convinced their father, Israel, of the lie that he was killed by a wild animal. They did this by slaughtering a lamb and dipping Joseph's coat into the blood of the lamb. Your host moves on and continues to explain another symbol. Everyone takes some horseradish, and he says that the bitter herbs that you are eating represents how Egyptians embittered our ancestors through slavery. Your throat and nose burns, tears roll down your eyes because of its spiciness as he tells about the brutal, oppressive life Israel once lived under. But then, all of a sudden, the host goes off script, which he's never done before. And he exclaims, one of you is going to betray me. Chaos erupts, accusations fly, everyone attempts to excuse themselves. You grow suspicious of your friends. Then everything settles down grab a piece of the flat unleavened bread, your host explains that it is unleavened because as your ancestors fled from the Egyptians, they didn't have time to put in the yeast. But he does another surprising thing that he has never done before. The host says, you are eating my body. Everybody looks at each other in confusion. Then he does another astonishing act. He gives you and your friends a cup and says, drink from it, all of you. 
this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. It says the word covenant and forgiveness, and you recall the teachings of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, saying, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Are you guys following along? Yeah, Jesus was convinced that what happened in that small room, that quiet place, that last meal, that that was an event of significance for all humanity, all places, all time. Jesus takes these symbolic elements representing different aspects of the story in Exodus, where God rescued and saved his people from slavery, and Jesus transforms them, adding additional new meaning. He transforms these symbols to find their fulfillment in him and what he's doing. Jesus invites us now, his friends, to experience a new Passover, one that not only remembers the past and how salvation came to Israel, but looks forward in how salvation will come to the whole world. He invites us to, na- to experience a new exodus, one where we can escape and have freedom from a different kind of slavery that burdens us and destroys us. I'm going to say that again. Jesus invites us now to experience a new Passover and a new exodus that looks forward in how we can escape and have salvation from a different slavery. And slavery from what? From Caesar? From Egypt? No. He had another enemy in mind, another pharaoh who is much more sinister, much more universal and pervasive than humanity. Just as the Egyptian slave drivers made the lives of the enslaved Israelites more miserable and bitter and impossible, sin in a, in a greater way leaves us beaten, hopeless, and fearful. Isn't it? Have you been stuck in something that you knew wasn't healthy, but you couldn't get out of it? What th- has that sin pattern robbed you of? How God delivered Moses and his people from being stuck in slavery to the Egyptian oppressor. Jesus also comes to deliver us from the captivity of the oppressor of sin. And just like the Israelites needed to be saved often through their story, this isn't a one-time transaction, but a daily, daily need that we need to constantly come to Jesus. When Jesus identifies the Passover bread as his body and the shedding of his blood that was poured out, we receive a new symbolic meaning to the Passover lamb. The blood of the lamb that was smeared on the doorposts of Israelites 1,500 years before to protect and save them from death and to allow them to escape slavery is now the blood of Jesus. This is his new covenant he establishes. Through the breaking of his body and outpouring of his blood, Jesus makes a new covenant with us where it may free and save humanity from death and allow us to escape the slavery of sin. He invites us to participate in this meal where we can accept our true identity that he has given us. And so if we walk away and we only think about how this is just a great cultural history lesson, then we've just completely missed the point. 
The point is that Jesus wanted us to keep participating in this meal, in, this, in these new symbolic unions. Just as every generation sees itself as a generation that came out of Egypt, every generation of his followers sees itself as, a, as the people who were seated with Jesus, who were seated with Jesus at the final meal, and we participated. Just as it is rooted in the Israelites about who they are and where they came from, we are also to root ourselves in this story by participating. If you recall at fall retreat, many of us participated in this meal. Usually we call it communion. And that's what we are going to do tonight after some songs. Communion is this action that reflects our relationship and covenant with Jesus. We participate with Jesus in taking bread that represents his body that was broken for us and wine, or juice in our case, uh, that represents his blood poured out for us. As I read about this Passover, I asked myself, like, how do I see communion? And tonight during musical worship, we're going to partake in these new symbols Jesus brought meaning to. The gospel writer Luke quote, and the gospel writer Luke quotes Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. As you take communion, do you remember how Jesus saved you from, his, from, from a life oppressed by sin and death? Do you remember how he welcomed you into the fullness of life in his kingdom? Can I get the worship team to come up? So as we close this message, uh, here are just two questions I really want you guys to ponder that I think will hold true for me. What sin has been repressing me that I need to surrender and let Jesus free and heal? What sin? Second question, what is Jesus inviting me to remember about my identity and about him tonight? So some of us need to confess to Jesus and with a friend tonight. Some of us need to remember who we are because we lost ourselves and we need to be grounded again in the love and the sacrifice Jesus performed on our behalf. Maybe you have never thought much about the meaning behind communion. I invite you to sit down with Jesus tonight and let him remind you of your worth to him. Let him begin and continue to transform you to be the restored version of you he designed you to be. And after a song, I will come back up and give us some instructions. And so for now, this is a time to process, journal, and also worship.